Daddy Lion. Daddy Lion. Mummy Lion. Uh huh. Great. And Baby Lion. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the world-famous Tetrodsology podcast. I'm Darren Naish. And I'm Harry Plopper. <laughs> and in this thrilling episode, can't believe I have to say all of this again, you idiot. <laughs> uh, let's just, uh, blah, blah, we said all that already, blah, blah. Right, um, we have new gear, new tech. New tech. Thanks to generous... Well, thanks entirely to, to Tetsu funding, right? Yeah, yeah so that's yeah. awesome. So, I can't believe we've got to say all this again. We've already all said this, this again. John yeah. forgot to press the record button. Um, um, uh, the, the last episode, 22, was terrible. Everyone hated it. It sounded awful to listen to. Oh, well, said, the, the subject matter wasn't terrible. The, um, the recording was terrible because you hey. were... You were in a bathroom underwater for some reason. If this gets um, transcripted, we'll know the content was ace. Mm -hmm. Just the audio was terrible. And thank you again. Mark the Fish. What an awesome job. Yeah. Drinking game may be in effect. I can't remember what we said about that. Two-minute rule is in effect. And um, we're going to stick to the agenda this time, John. No, no, we're not. You know we're not. <laughs> <laughs> so... Number one, there's four sections to this podcast. We're going to yes. do this rigorously. Number one, what what have we been up to? We have been organising a conference. Or a convention. Oh, yes. Yeah, what's the word? Symposium is probably the best, isn't it? Well, I'm Sounds a bit... Hmm. They all sound a bit too heavy. Yes. Because I wanted to have more of a convention. We're talking about an event that we're going to call TetsuCon. TetsuCon. So I guess that does suggest conference, doesn't it? Uh, well, con is a convention. Convention? So, oh, so it's so. going to be a combination of talks, um, workshop-type events, but there's also going to be stalls and um, um, merchandise and, um, yeah, stuff. So when and where? Uh, well, it's not finalised yet, but it looks like it's going to be on in the Wetland Centre, London Wetland Centre, um, in July, probably the twelfth, but as I say, nothing's finalised. So, um, yes, but keep that date open if you are interested in such a thing. So there's a Facebook group that we've set up, which it's got a really stupid title, like "I would, I would come to a tetrapodology themed convention" or something like that, because it was just run as an experiment to see if there was enough interest. So thank you to everyone who's expressed an interest, because obviously we needed to build up, an, you know, we needed to know if we could build up enough potential. Um, people going along before we could actually commit to organising it and stuff because yeah but so far it's looking good it's probably going to happen so there is yeah. going to be a TetsuCon there is uh, going to be a TetsuCon right so so now you know so um, please join the Facebook group and and indulge in the uh, engage in the discussions yes and I will I will also be setting up I mean I think we should set up a mailing list or a different sort of website that's outside Facebook for those non-Facebookers um, I will be working on something like that. So, if you're interested in um, joining that, maybe, maybe you should email to tetrapodcats at gmail dot com, and I'll get back to you. 
with the uh, details. Yeah, or yeah. you can leave a comment at the uh, Tetsu.com. Tetsu, what's the site, podcast site? I don't know. Tetsu.com. Yeah, so that. hard leave... to remember. <laughs> <laughs> leave a comment there. Um, so we're still working on the... So that's cool. The CryptoZoologicon Volume 2 is coming together. I really want to get the text finished this week, which means that um, you and Memo need to finish the art as well. Uh, so coming together, it's really difficult to know how to account for... Um, like comments about the first one, I think I said on on uh, Twitter that um, the problem is that the comments have been totally scattershot. It's not as if it's not as if people have said so. So, so the overwhelming response as regards cryptozoological volume one, the overwhelming response is positive. I mean, obviously you get one or two people saying, "I hate this and I wish you were dead." Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, that but generally it's people like oh I quite like it it gets like you know four stars out of five four and a half stars out of five that kind of rating, um, but some people say I really wish you did more silly speculative stuff because that's the best bit, and other people say more science more, yeah, more science, science damn it cut it out with the silliness, and other people say a, co a comment that I, that I thought was a really interesting one is someone said that he found the jump from the um because because the the each of the cryptids gets. A historical review, then uh, a skeptical evaluation, and then finally the speculative what could what could this be in an alternative universe kind of treatment. And one person said that he thought that there was a real jump, a jarring jump between the the end of the second section and that and the third one. And I can appreciate that, I can see that. But um we do say specifically in in the book that <clears throat> The whole point of the different sections is that that third one is the sort of silly speculative one that's often meant to be written from the perspective of the true believer type cryptozoologist. So, so basically, as the person who's mostly doing the writing, um, I don't feel I can really account for all the opinions, and I'm just going to carry on and do the same as I did with the first one. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't think there's any way to account for all the different opinions. So, yeah. And yeah. sort of the yeah, there's a I can sort of see yeah, there's a jump, but that's in some ways the whole conceit of the book. So yeah, can't it is made as clear as possible that that is the the thing that's going on there. There is a that third yeah. section is meant to be very different. But um, oh, well, I feel really good about it. I mean, I was doing the Shujinoko Shujinoko thing yesterday, which was great fun. And if you don't know what that is, some of you will. Son of a straw bat, it means. <laughs> Weird Japanese cryptid. Japanese cryptids, wow. <laughs> they must have smoked a lot of... I don't know, do they smoke pot in Japan? Whatever, they I must have know. done a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> medieval <laughs> Japan or whatever. Um, but also giant man-eating trees, Loch Ness monsters, um, mapping guaris, and uh, many other creatures are in Volume 2. So if you mm. liked Volume 1, you'll be looking forward to that, I'm sure. So yes. So, um, 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 um uh, I wanted to mention briefly a couple of things that were on Tetsu lately, because it being April, as is tradition, there's an April the first article. Yeah. Did you read it? The Age no. of Maximum Cassowary. Of course I you didn't. Did. I didn't. No. Sorry. <laughs> did you look at the pictures <laughs> on Facebook? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maximum Cassowary. So. It's just a bunch of things that came together at the same time. I have been working on cassowaries for, for a while. I have cassowaries on my mind quite a lot. And I'm currently reading Andrew Mack's book, Searching for Peck Peck, Cassowaries and, Rain and Conservation in the New Guinea Rainforest. 
which I'm enjoying very much. So I've cassowaries on the brain. So I thought April 1st, I'll do a cassowary thing. And thank you to Gareth, Gareth Monger, Gaffer Mondo, uh, for his uh, extensive... It's Mogna, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Gets drink. <laughs> And I owe him an apology because there was like several episodes back where he left a comment on Facebook and I misread it and said, and Gareth says, I don't know what to say or something like that. So sorry to him. I, I, but I can't remember what it was he actually did say. <laughs> so, and I can't be bothered to find it. Thank you to Ethan, Ethan Kosak as well of Black Mud Puppy for one of the illustrations. Um, yeah. Uh, so... What, oh, and also, uh, you know, I, so the, the last time we spoke about published output, I, I, you know, we talk about like new technical papers that mostly I've done. You don't seem to publish so many technical papers, don't know why. All um, the time. I just do it <laughs> under a pseudonym. <laughs> Which is? Uh, <laughs> Paul. Yeah. Paul Serino. <laughs> Paul Serino. <laughs> um, I spoke about the paper I had in Pierre J a couple of weeks ago on. Uh, morphometric analysis of Peruvian big cat skulls, which I published together with Peter Hawking, Manabu Sakamoto, and Gustav Sanchez. Um, well, Pierre J did an interview with me about that paper and about the sort of you know the story behind that paper. So if you're interested in that, go to Pierre J and I don't know, search for Nash interview or something. It's it's it's, a, it's an excuse to not only talk about the research a bit more about what we did on uh, these big cat skulls, the story behind them which is kind of covered on Tetsu anyway, but also an excuse to talk about open access because obviously uh, PeerJ is uh, an open access um, journal and the open access uh, movement in, in general. Um, that's kind of covered there. So what have we been up to? There you go, that's summary. All right. But see, the problem is here, Darren, is that you've got the PeerJ interview in FU in yeah. your little thing here. So yeah. was that follow-up and what we've been up to? Well, or was that... originally I thought that's follow-up, but then I thought it's more applicable to... Oh, we're off the to. rails already. But that's because, Why don't that's we just because... jump in and start talking about Shaun of the Dead right now? There's a Holtzian crapload or buttload of stuff that needs Chaos to be covered. Chaos reigns, Darren. Chaos reigns. In FU, there's loads more stuff to cover. I'm trying to be trying to do it right here. Okay, so is that what we've been up to? I think that's everything we've been up to. Well, that's everything I want to talk about right now. There's naturally there's other stuff. All right. But um. Okay, let's move on to Fu then. Fu. Fu. Uh, I don't know. It's got a kind of random feel here because okay, but it's just it's just like it's related to things we've covered before. <laughs> there are new Godzilla trailers, for example. Uh -huh, there's like uh -huh. two or three new Godzilla trailers, which I'm sure everyone's seen. I like them. What do you think? I have not seen them. Ah, I wanted a negative opinion. Okay. Um, uh, you know how I often screw up people's names? Yeah. Right. So I spoke about... was it? Oh, the last... I do that too, but yes. Everyone you do. does that. You do, but people don't pay attention to what you say. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the, the last episode, we had a little bit of a discussion about new theropods, and I spoke about Torvosaurus gurnii from Portugal. And I said... And I have to say, in my defense, that... Because of the technical issues we had last episode, I couldn't use my keyboard, which means I couldn't sneakily, you know, check anything online. And sometimes, you know, come on, everybody forgets. You forget your own name or the number of your house or when your wife's birthday is. You forget anything can be forgotten. Anything can be forgotten. 
So I make no apologies for the fact that I, I forget really, really obvious stuff. So, for example, the Torbosaurus paper, Christoph Hendricks and Octavio Mateus. I know Octavio Mateus. I've spoken to him many times, but I got his name wrong. I called him Oliver, so apologies. Octavio, it's Octavio Mateus. Even better was when we were talking about... Now, why was it? Why Was it, was it maybe a follow-on from... Mike Habib's talk talking about the reconstructing as dark kids. I can't remember. Instead of <laughs> David Krentz, I said Dallas Krenzel. And of course everyone thought, or I don't know, Keezy maybe thought or said that I would that I'd Travoltaized his name <laughs> and, and somehow morphed David Krentz into Dallas Krenzel. <laughs> I didn't know I I did not <laughs> notice this at all. Didn't you? No. Oh. Maybe I was doing something else at the time. You're on one yeah. and you're just going on and on and on. Not paying attention. It's all people have been talking about. Um, this is the second time I've mentioned John Travolta on the Tetsu podcast. Have, I ever, have you ever heard my John Travolta impression? <laughs> well, it's time for one now then, I guess. Yeah, I'm John Travolta. I can't do it now. <laughs> Battlefield Earth was a good idea. <clears throat> um... But I didn't Travoltaize David Krentz. I actually just remember. Look, David Krentz, DK, Dallas Krenzel, DK. And Dallas Krenzel, that's not a corruption of David Krentz. Dallas is a real person who I know who is uh, he's just, well, he's currently doing a PhD, I think, at the University of Chicago. But um, David Krentz, sorry, David. Now, David lives in the big Hollywood, Hollywood movie world. And <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, is currently, his, his bragging is that he currently is working with Edgar Wright. Do you know who Edgar Wright is? No. You know Sean and the Dead that we're going to talk about? Yeah. And all that stuff and space and all those things. Mm. Yeah. I'm not, so, David, I'm not mocking you. Seriously, I'm not very kudos, you know, and everything. Love your work. Seriously. And um, yeah, so he's currently working with Edgar Wright, who directed Sean and the Dead and um, uh, Spaced, which is the best TV series ever. And mm. so on and so forth. So there you go. I wanted to tidy that. Oh, new papers. There's a new living species of tapir from oh, wow. Brazil. It may possibly occur in, I think, Colombia and Ecuador as well. And it's just been published in the uh, latest issue of Journal of Mammalogy by Mario Coswell now. Mario Coswell and colleagues. They How it... are we just hearing about this now, Darren? Well, it's kind of funny. Sleep at the switch, I tell It's you. potentially one of the most significant mammals of the 21st century. And, and yeah, it's only just been published. Although it does turn out that it was actually a specimen has been known since about, I think, the early 1900s because one was shot by Teddy Roosevelt and it's been in the American Museum of Natural History New York since then. It's called Taparus Cabamani. Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Is there anything he didn't shoot? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Played very well by Robin Williams in uh, Night of the Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He rode uh, a moose in that, didn't he? Uh, no, it was called a horse. <laughs> okay, that was the real Teddy Roosevelt then. Teddy Roosevelt? What? Really? Oh, Google it right now. Teddy Roosevelt riding a what? moose. You can ride mooses. He did. There's a photo can... of it. Well, okay. There's, I, I know that, that, that there have been many, uh, more in Russia, in North America, but there have been many efforts to uh, domesticate mooses and use them to like use them as beasts of burden. But He's one of the problems. it across a river. Well, there you go. Okay, I, I don't, I don't doubt it. 
they, mooses are huge. I mean, wow, they're often stronger than horses. The problem, you know, what the problem with mooses is they're too clever. You need a stupid animal as a beast of bird, not a clever one that wants to make its own decisions. And one yeah. of the problems with 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 mooses is um, they proved um, ultra unreliable in combat situations because they wouldn't just blindly follow orders in the same way that horses are more inclined to. I'm not saying the horses would do anything, but they're more. In, they they so like they would. There's a giant bang and a bomb and stuff. I'm not going towards that now. Oh, no, is that is that related to intelligence or I don't know less. Maybe it's good that we've trained horses to do that because that's what people want them to do. Anyway, sorry, going off tangent. It Does, doesn't seem like there's much in it for the horse, but yeah. Mm. But they're just blindly following orders, and that's kind of that's the job of a domesticator, isn't it? You don't want it to to make sensible decisions. <laughs> like, people trained dogs to like put bombs under tanks and stuff, which would involve the dog dying. But yeah, like, but I well, don't that... think the dog knew it was going to die. No. <laughs> But isn't that isn't that a famous thing that backfired because the dogs like ran under the tanks that they've been trained to run under, not under the enemy tanks. <laughs> Pretty sure I've heard that. Yeah, it's covered on QI. I think those of you that know QI. Um, uh, axolotls. So we ran this story exclusive to the Tesla podcast. Yeah, right. Um, that uh, axolotls probably extinct in the wild because people have failed to find them in Xochimilco lake in mexico um so for a long time as in like for 10 years or more people have been saying they think axolotls are close to extinction in the wild but they're not extinct because local people know where to find them because they still capture them and eat them um but then but then this new study as of as of a couple of weeks ago a team said we can't find any axolotls in the wild at all we think they are now completely extinct um this month, April 2014, a team led by Armando Tovagaza from the National Autonomous University in Mexico, they uh, specifically, again, they're doing another survey looking for wild axolotls, and they saw two wild axolotls. So this is one of those animals, like the Yangtze River dolphin and a couple of others around the world, where they may be, uh, it may be best to regard them as functionally extinct, which means that yeah, there might be like two or three, but they're doomed. They're, they may as well be extinct because mm. they're not going to recover from two or three, especially yeah. given that people are still catching them and eating them as and, <laughs> as and when possible, as is the way of our species because we're like that. Um, so axolotls and other follow-up. I also wanted to... Um, um, Matt Martin Yoik. I think it was <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt Martin Yoik. Uh, drink. Somebody quoted verbatim the um, the thing where we were talking about pinnipeds, and I said that this is like going back several episodes. I said uh, people think that sea lions and fur seals and seals are sort of like safe, cuddly animals you can go up and pet them, despite the fact that it's like a meter long, you know, big formidable dog group carnivoran. And I said, and I referred to them as water bears. Now, do you know what a water bear is? Yeah, they're those little indestructible... Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know my yeah. phylogeny down there, but yes. Who does? They're called tardigrades. Yeah, tardigrades, yeah. And I don't know, I don't know where they fit in the tree of life. But, um, but the fact that I referred to pinnipeds as water bears, I think Julius Sotonyi, Julius Sotonyi said... <laughs> drink, drink, drink. 
he said, um, a meter long water bear. Well, that sounds really scary because obviously water bears are tardigrades are you know, millimeters in size. So, OK, I meant sea bears, not water bears. And I actually said something like, Jesus Christ, goddamn non-tetrapods. <laughs> um, <laughs> always getting in the way of the. If it's not fish, it's... Uh, yeah, I don't, think you, I don't know about that. I think you can keep them. Um, they're not real bears, are they? <laughs> they're not bear. even related to bears in that way. God, I'm just well, digging a hole here. There's other examples of that where you can't say... They're not tetrapods, so we don't care. <laughs> if they've don't... got the name first, we don't care. Mm. Oh, right. so I mentioned, I mentioned Julius Satonyi. Did you read my do... <laughs> did you... Did you... Did you uh, read my Dougal Dixon interview? Um, so, I did. This is hugely popular. Thank you to everyone who read that and commented on that. Lots of interesting comments on the Dougal Dixon interview, which, which Dougal and I actually did back in August last year. Um, I spoke about Dougal's, um, well, one of his most, re well, his most recent speculative project, which is this two-volume Japanese book called um, Green World. And... Uh, Unlike most of the other Dougal Dixon speculative books, it's all the art is done, nearly all the art is done by Dougal. And if you've read the Tetsu article, you'll know that Dougal is a really good artist. And it's kind of weird that publishers haven't used his stuff. I don't know why that is. Green World is different because it's illustrated throughout by Dougal. Loads of illustrations by him. But there's a few illustrations that, that obviously don't match a style that you know, he, he familiar with, that, that he's not used to. For example, Green World... Is, um, it's meant to tell the story of human colonizers on an alien planet, and you see some of the creatures of the planet through like advertising and artwork and bounty posters and all that sort of thing. And there's, a, there's an advert for, it looks like it's for cigarettes, but I don't think it is for cigarettes. But it's for something, because I don't think people smoke in this hypothetical future. But, um, or maybe they do, I don't know. But whatever, there's an advert for a product called Artemis, and it's a, it's kind of like a, um, you know how adverts use newsflash advertising often uses blatant sexuality to uh, to advertise things. So it's a a creature called a strider, which is like one of the main sort of big beasts of burden that people use on Green World, with a with a scantily clad woman provocatively draped over the strider. And that's that the justification for this is because it's an advertisement. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be like, we're getting behind this. This is We want to see more of this. No comment on that. But whatever, that illustration is done by Julia Satonyi. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Uh, Julia Satonyi in a Dougal Dixon book. Small world, eh? Um, more FU. Now, I got... Do you remember we spoke episodes ago about the um, Bill Nye, um, uh crazy wackaloon creationist guy? Uh, that creationism Ken debate. Ken Ham, Ham versus Nye. So, and let's not beat about the proverbial bush here. We, we aren't fans of creationism <laughs> and didn't say very positive things about Ken Ham. He's an idiot, and the stuff he says is just ridiculous and does, is, doesn't deserve anything beyond ridicule. And is also bad because it makes people think that it's okay to believe in crazy stuff um i got an interesting comment from uh, josh cotton hello to him he's a regular petzi listener so it's kind of interesting that i think we have you know a full 
spectrum of you know people people listening from from all from all parts of the uh, the cosmos as it were and um, and Josh reminds me that basically and Josh has said himself he, he is a Mormon he's a creationist but he wants to make the point that there's a difference between like believing in what's basically an unacceptable position the sort of young earth like seven day creationism that people like Ken Ham advocate and the like views of cre- views of creationism that kind of are more consistent with an ancient universe and an ev- evolution an evolution that's consistent with the evolution that that is you know acceptable to well supported by science is the one that scientists and atheists would say that they are backing as well so i do find this kind of interesting the fact that you can be a full believer in gods and a god and a sort of creationism but still at the same time find it you know argue that it's consistent with uh with a a, a creationistic creation creationism worldview thing i'm not obviously not saying that i support it i i'm, I'm an atheist i don't believe in uh, uh gods or a god or a creator and i don't understand why anyone would need that but at the same time i do I kind I kind of think having thought about this issue a lot I do sort of think that um what's the what's the word libertarianism liberalism that kind of comes first so the the belief that people should be allowed to believe what they want is maybe more important than the idea that you want people to necessarily follow a certain set of like these are the facts that we have to stick with we're going to follow those well indeed so, so I believe people should be allowed to believe what they like. You can believe what you like. No one's going. No one should tell you that you can't believe what you want, even if you're even if you're believing unacceptable nonsense. But so you can't. I wouldn't say to creationists, uh, like a young Earth creationist, stop believing that rubbish. You're bad. Although, hold on, a minute, isn't that exactly what I say? <laughs> I think what you're yeah. saying is you wouldn't make laws to stop them believing it. Exactly. Exactly. If I now, yeah. You know, yeah, if I was in like charge, that of would it, work anyway. Well, it depends how harsh how harsh you want it to be. If you want it to be some like evil dictator type person, you could you know put people to death and all kinds of stuff, which which people have done throughout history. You know, people that don't conform with their views. Whereas I think if people if if people like us were in charge, you'd let people like believe what they want. It's like that's okay, but because because that's the thing I've heard from from some creationist groups is like they say ah atheists just want power because then they want to like strip out all the stuff that they don't believe in because they've got their own agenda their own religion it's like no that's really not true in general people into that stuff people who have a an atheistic worldview um generally are pretty liberal and do believe in the sanctity of humanity or or you know um the um uh fair play and um being excellent to each other that kind of stuff <laughs> well, um, yeah, and, and freedom of speech and that sort of thing yeah absolutely yeah. i don't think that um of course there have been some notable exceptions in the past um like, but that tends to go with some really strong political view well yeah because cause communism for example some of the yeah. communist regimes got pretty heavy about what people should be thinking right um, and they were a lot of them were expressly atheistic but i think the important thing there was not the atheism it was the communism yeah 
because yeah, let's let's go reductio um, ad Hitlerum here. Mm. So I think everyone would agree the important thing about Nazism was the Nazism, and that the religion that went along with it was sort of a bit incidental, right? So it's very it's a bit unclear what Nazis were, but they sort of treated religion in a sort of pragmatic sort of way. Lots of them said they were Christian. Yeah, they were Christian. Yeah, well, some of them weren't. Um, but the point is that that wasn't really the main thing. So yeah. saying that, you know, and I think that's sort of true of communism too. It wasn't so much that atheism led any of these to any of these things happening or these people believing what they did. It was more the communism that did that, much like Nazism was Nazism. It wasn't sort of an offshoot of Christianity or anything like that. Yeah, that's a bit I of an agree. offshoot, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I agree strongly. But it is so. It's very annoying when you hear some people definitely coming from a religious perspective. People like Ken Ham saying that atheism led to Nazism or whatever. It's like no, that is a lie. And it's very mm. easy to demonstrate that it's just not not true at all. As much as we could talk, say a lot more about that, I mean, um, yeah, mm. politics, <laughs> kind of kind of off tangent. Um, although, just that Hitler reminds me that um, there's a TV series at the moment called Dead Famous DNA, fronted by Mark Evans. Mark Evans, as in the guy behind Inside Nature's Giants and that that Bigfoot DNA TV series. Mark Evans goes around trying to collect the DNA of like famous people like Elvis Presley and um, <clears throat> Charles Darwin. And, and he discovered this, this, I think they're on episode two of the series at the moment, uh, they discovered that there are bits of hair and bone said to be from Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun, which, ha oh, take a drink because I'm sure I got that wrong, um, which are sort of like available on the black market. And he's actually gotten hold of these and has been getting them DNA tested. Now, most people say they won't, most labs around the world will not touch anything supposed to be from Hitler or obviously anyone uh, from, from that, from the Third Reich. But, um, <laughs> I think so. that's, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Like, we're going to clone Hitler and he'll re rule the world again. No, he won't. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> so ridiculous. Even well, if we had a bunch of Hitler clones running around. I'm sure most of them would be just fine. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. his DNA that made him like, yeah. That's buying into his whole belief, isn't it? That's kind of, that's kind of the justification for doing it. Mark Evans in the TV show says that we want to do it because I want to know if it was, is there anything like fundamentally, you know, genetic to Hitler that made him as, as, as bad as he was. That's just but, dumb. Um, of course there isn't. Uh, ah, he had because the, also, the, the other thing is that Hitler, as a person, and this is going to sound really, um, I'm going to get myself into trouble here, but he wasn't a, personality-wise, he wasn't this horrible, horrible person. He did horrible things, and he ruled over something that was really, really horrible. But I think you find nastier people in the world than yeah. Hitler. But isn't there the suspicion that they're going to find stuff like genetic traces of obscene narcissism or self-obsession or that sort of thing because there's no doubt that he was like... We all know people like that. Yeah. So any one of them could be a potential <laughs> Hitler. Because, like, for yeah. example, it, like I mentioned this because I recently saw the, the, the Monuments Men movie. Um, there's the whole thing about like the Führer Museum. I mean, what kind of person would... This is real tricky. We're we're going way off tangent here. Just mm. 
Okay, just try, try and keep this real short. The, the idea of the Führer Museum is Hitler basically wanted this giant museum in Berlin, which is all the artwork of Europe. All of it, not just mm. some of it, but like all of it, all the great artwork of, of Europe and maybe of the world, actually, I don't know. But all of it goes in one museum dedicated to him. And then because the Allies were trying to stop him doing this, trying to get the, the artwork, you know, not going to Berlin, if it got, if shipments were like, you know, sort of, uh, they couldn't, they couldn't like be transported to where they're meant to go. He ordered them to be destroyed. So his guys actually destroyed loads of artwork just because they couldn't get it to the Führer Museum. And it's like that kind of mentality. I mean, I'm talking complete rubbish, of course, because there's no reason why that kind of approach could be anything to do with your genes. It could just be because you've become crazed with power. And obviously, maybe that's the part of the story. But Well, I would say that's absolutely the case that they should be. It's not. In your well, obviously you're going to have predispositions to things, but the notion that someone's destined to be a world leader who does horrible things—that's just that's utter insanity. I mean, it's off yeah. off well into pseudoscience, I'm afraid. Okay, okay. So, how did we get from there to here? Uh... Okay, back back to <laughs> back to. Well, I think we're done with the fu, aren't we? Uh, one more thing. Okay. The, um, which is the um, in the Dougal Dixon article I mentioned the and we spoke about this I think last podcast that speculative animal ochrid drawn by John Mazaros which predicted the real suspension feeding animal ochrid Tamesiocaris the paper by Jacob Vinter and colleagues they named several new clades of animal ochrid including Cetiocaridae which is named after John Mazaros's hypothetical Cetiocaris. Um, if you are at all interested in animal ochrids and their phylogenetic nomenclature, <laughs> check out the several comments from <laughs> David Marjanovic. Yay, Marjanovic. We love him um, because he has left uh, a series of incisive comments in the Tetsu comment section, basically saying that Vinter et al.'s phylogenetic definitions for some of the clays they named are problematic. So. They're not tetrapods, so I don't really care, but uh, you might want to check that out. So, right. And yeah. therein, we're done. Okay. On. We're done with FU. FU. All right. Let's go on to cash for questions. Cash for questions. <laughs> I don't want to ruin my new headphones. Why am yeah. I headphones? Um, well, they're long ones this week. Uh, Yes, okay. So let's start with one from Mike at Terranscapes. And there are probably a bunch of words in here I don't know how to pronounce. What's the worst that could happen? Well, let's let's see. Is Toxoplasma gondii undergoing an evolutionary fitness increase? Reasoning. Infection of humans by oocysts? Oocysts. Oocysts. I think so. Oocysts. Is easy. Soil, litter box, fecal contamination from poor hand washing. Estimates are, are that 30% of the population is now infected. If humans respond similarly, rodents <laughs> similarly, yeah, similarly, 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 similarly. Oh man, I've completely lost the track here. <gasps> if, human, if humans respond similarly, 
<laughs> to rodents in enhancing their attraction to felines, it favours a larger cat population. Are you following this? I'm not really following this. I'm going to have to read through it again, to be honest, but yeah, carry on. <clears throat> Research already shows that some behavioural alterations in humans from toxo-infection. Don't worry, I'm going to edit some of this out. Oh, toxo, toxo benefits from larger host from a larger host population, and the new non-prey persistent transmission vector. This would shift its commensual relationship with cats to a mutualistic one. Thoughts? Now, Can you summarise this question for yeah. me? So the the gist of the question here. This is a question about the coevolution of toxoplasma, which is a, a pro, uh, well, it's a it's a it's a microbe that's spread through uh, dung of, of animals. Uh, it's a question about the coevolution between that and its hosts and vectors. And basically, Mike at Terranscapes is asking. Um, so, so he's saying now I know very little about this, and it's a non-tetrapod. But his justification for this is that this it obviously uses. Um, tetrapods as vectors and hosts. And he says that if rodents are infected with toxoplasma, I'm, I always thought it was to toxoplasmosis, or maybe that's the name of the condition that you get if you ingest toxoplasma. Yeah, I believe I, so. I, that's, yeah, right. that's, the, that's the condition. Okay. He's saying, and got to take his word for this, and I haven't done any homework on it whatsoever, he's saying that if rodents are infected with toxoplasma, their behavior shifts such that they make themselves more available as prey items to cats because the cat is the host of the toxoplasma, the rodent is the vector. And then the the toxoplasma, their its life cycle obviously the next stage is it's pooped out by the cat and thereby eaten and then eaten by insects or whatever and eaten by rodents. Um, so he's saying that it changes the behaviour of the rodents. And if he's saying that, is it possible that humans? Well, he's according to this question, research already shows that the humans human behaviour is being is being altered by toxoplasma infection. So he's saying that this. Yeah, if 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 a significant percentage of people are, are behaviorally changed due to acting as the vectors for toxoplasma, <clears throat> does this Cat shift ladies. relationship? <laughs> does this shift the commence the commensal relationship that it has with cats to a mutualistic one? Well, it's a really interesting uh, and and messy situation, and I really wish I'd kind of <laughs> read up about it beforehand so I could have something intelligent to say. Um, so, what do you think? <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, I really wish I would do, I should do some, I should brush up on my um, evolutionary theory again, because I often get, I have to think about these things from first principles, and often other people have thought about it and written it down quite well, and I should yeah. remember it better. But, so, um, to be mutualistic, both both should have a benefit. So, the the theory would be if you took away the toxoplasma cats would actually be less fit it would be an evolutionary disadvantage and if you took away cats toxoplasma would be less fit right yes. this is this is so it's sort of a threshold thing isn't it yeah so you can be very close to um the edge where you know it's it's got some benefits maybe some drawbacks and Maybe it's it's virtually neutral. 
Yes, uh, mutualistic relationship. It's very difficult to know hmm. when it crosses that threshold, isn't it? I don't know what the disadvantages there are to cats having, uh, being a host of Toxoplasma are. I just, I so. I would agree. I would say that's something you definitely need to know. But yeah. one of the things that interests me here a lot is that the fact that, you know, this is not a surprise to those of us who know about this kind of stuff, but the fact that human behavior is modified by um, uh, protists or, you know, whatever parasites. Because we know that, we know that, you know, there's, there's classic studies of other creatures where, like, people, um, where, you know, there's snails that, accidentally eat certain kinds of like nematodes and their behavior changes there's ants that ingest fungi and their behavior changes they do stupid things that end in their own deaths but are obviously they're controlled by the the parasite inside them it's almost as if f people have sort of forgotten that those rules might apply to people as well and yet now we've got data indicating that people people's behavior can be changed newsflash people can be changed by um things as well so so if toxoplasma has the uh, is able to change human behavior? Well, exactly how? I mean, and and so. Well, I've read that it's meant to make you more promiscuous. Make you like cats more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've <I'm> my answer. <laughs> and promiscuous, yeah, and promiscuous. You're more promiscuous, and you like cats more. But I, this is just purely from memory, and it's probably from some completely. Uh, I was going to swear, but uh, we're not allowed to do that on that, this podcast, are we? Um, unreputable source, yeah. BuzzFeed, wow. or one of those horrible things, um, which I try not to read anymore. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, so uh, I thought that's what it was meant to do. Wow, that's, that's amazing. If, if true, that's amazing. If, if true, so. that's amazing. Uh, yeah, so mm, if that is true and there isn't a big disadvantage to cats, then then it probably is a mutualistic relationship, right? I don't see why not. But, yeah, without knowing the numbers, it's sort of like a numbers game, isn't it? Yeah, I'm kind of inclined. I'm curious enough to want to go and read up about this and uh, and maybe talk about it again. So so thank you, Mike at Terranscapes, if that's your real name, for uh, <laughs> yeah for bringing that one up because I, I do think that's interesting. And um, I'm, I'm sorry we don't know more about it, but then, you know, why would we really? Because it's... A, 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 well, I suppose it affects tetrapods, doesn't it? Well, there's there's so there's so many areas of knowledge where it's like your interest ones. I don't mean you. I mean one's interest kind of stops, even though it's relevant to the 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 subject that you're specially interested in. So I'm specially interested in tetrapods, but when people start talking about cellular level biology and that sort of stuff, which obviously you know that's still about tetrapods, I don't know. That just doesn't. I know that's not just me because everyone's interested in different things. You know, if you're only interested in like anatomy and biomechanics and stuff, you tend not to be interested in physiology and cell level biology and that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah. So I tend well, yeah, not. To... I mean, yeah. Obviously, the field is too big to know. Yes. A lot about all the because yeah, yeah, and then uh, yeah, tetrapods are made of atoms. I mean, you're going to be physicists <laughs> too. Right? Yeah, that's impossible. Okay, let's. Uh... So, not a very satisfactory answer, I guess. We talked about well, it a bit. No, but I, but, but I kind uh, of... Yeah, we might come back to that, because I think, yeah, maybe we need to just sort of uh, get our facts straight about it. Mm. And, uh, but, but the flavour of his question is speculative anyway. It's like, could it, could it, could it have some impact? And, and if so, what does that mean? Could we have some yeah. special cast of, like, uh, cat people that... Uh, 
<laughs> One of my favourite movies. Don't judge me. The, uh, Cat People. Cat People. Schrader's 1983 remake or whatever. Oh, the remake too. The re- the re- I like the remake. I'm not too fussed on the original one from the 30s. Yeah, I know. It's weird. <laughs> Isn't the original one from the 60s? No, it's black and white. Yeah. You do realise that most B films in the sixties were made, were black. Of course, of course, of course. I know that. I'm not stupid. Yeah. At people, 1942. That's closer to the thirties than the sixties. So, pwned. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So, next, yeah. next, next oh, cash for question. Next cash for questions. So done. Uh, move I, on. I, uh, I'm afraid I mispronounced uh, this person's name last. Else. Incorrect last time, yes. And uh, this is the old not putting your full name in the um, email header. So it was just Delce. I pronounced Delcy for some reason. Idiot. I don't know. Seemed fancier. <laughs> <laughs> so this question's from Irene Delce. I'm curious about the origin of tet- tetrapods. Who were the first tetrapods and how do they differ from their fishy, an- fishy ancestors, the lobe-finned fishes? Fish! Ah, oh, fish. Goddamn fish. And why did tetrapod-like creatures only evolve once? Or did they? Thanks, Irene Delce. Right. So something that we did cover, oh, a couple of episodes back, was what are the tetrapods? And there's a couple of different competing definitions. And to keep things short and simple, the one we're going for here is what we call the branch-based definition, which means that it's all members of the lineage that includes the limb and digit-bearing um, lobe-finned fishes, so all the things from like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega and all the other members of that lineage. But then when you get down to like the the ones that are very close to the transition between tetrapods and non-tetrapods, like Tiktaalik, are they members of that lineage uh, or not? And Tiktaalik and the other Elpistostegalians, these, um, what's an, there's another name for them, um, <sighs> those things that are like near tetrapods they're, they're like technically god damn it I'm going to have to check this now this is part <laughs> of the tree I'm really rusty on because I haven't touched lo- well, I, the, this book <laughs> fish, I'm, fish. I've, I've been I've been it's ray finned fishes and um Placoderms that have kept me busy for more than a year now. More than a year. And I haven't got to fleshy fin fishes or lobe fin fishes yet. So I'm I haven't done anything, I haven't read about the Amazite Tiktaalik for a long time. Elpistostegalians. Now they're outside of the clade that includes Acanthostega and Ichthyostega. So they're not tetrapods. But could they be included within the more a more inclusive clade of flesh fin fishes? Well, yes, they are members of a more inclusive clade. Oh, God, stegocephalians, I guess. Um, so in animals like Tiktaalik, we do see a really nice kind of... Well, Tiktaalik has an almost perfect transitional form between other kinds of flesh fin fishes and early tetrapods. So it's got like... It's got weird halfway structures, like it's got... It's got um, the 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 way its its uh, forelimbs are arranged, 
it's got it doesn't have digits, but it's got like um the various bones, the the shape of the humerus and the arrangement of the digital rays and so on. Basically make looks like a prototype for a tetrapod limb. It's got the first indications of of a of a neck. It's got the the kind of broad uh occipital region at the back of the head that looks kind of tetrapod like. So we see in animals like Tiktaalik, close to the ancestry of animals like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega, we do see a really nice um, sort of sequence, in a sense, going from animals like Tristocopterids, like Eustonopteran, and the, also the Rhizodonts. We see these like uh, big, broad-headed predators with muscular fins. We then see them like evolving uh, necks and uh, uh, skulls with like a sort of more flattened dorsally and with dorsally positioned eyes and a mouth that's kind of more uh, underneath the skull than at the front of it. We see these things happening in animals like Tiktaalik and they are the prototypes of, of animals like Acanthostega, which um, the fossil record now shows, and bear in mind there's been a lot of work done on Ichthyostega in particular lately. Animals like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega, they Ichthyostega in particular might have been able to move around on land, but it wasn't the sort of salamander-like uh, creature uh, traditionally depicted in the textbooks. Its hind limbs are oriented such that they mostly point backwards. They may have like sort of dragged along the ground, still had a, a tail fin ray, uh, could probably like raise itself up off the ground if it was to locomote terrestrially, but would have had to use some weird sort of like mudskipper-like kind of hopping motion. Um, Jenny Clack and colleagues currently reckon reckon. So, the, and the the general gist of that is that animals like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega, although they are early members of this limbed, flesh-finned fish clade, they fleshy-finned fish clade, they are they are early tetrapods. They still are strongly adapted for life in water. So it's not as if you evolve limbs and digits and suddenly, but you know, you're out there on the on the land running around. Uh, there still is uh, a lot of aquatic adaptation in these animals. So. Um, the animals that that are close to tetrapods but not tetrapods, like Rhizodonts, Tristocopterids, uh, Stegocephalians, uh, sorry, Elpistostegalians, like Tiktaalik, these animals are all big, skulking aquatic predators. They're all animals like a meter long or more. You know, Rhizodonts, huge animals, up to five, six, seven meters, maybe more. They're all they're all big, um, like things that would have like lurked around and lunged out and grabbed um, other fishy things. They're nasty, formidable predators. And the, the origin of tetrapods has to be seen within that context. That The early tetrapods were like a, a big, skulking ambush predators that um, have a bunch of features that, of course, it's been argued that things like limbs and digits, if, if animals like Ichthyostega are predominantly aquatic, then is it that limbs and digits evolve within an aquatic setting? were advantageous for like movement in aquatic situations rather yeah. than the classic old story is that they evolved for they evolved under selective pressure related to moving on land but maybe that actually evolved for use in water and the analogy here is with animals like frogfishes because you can because limbs and digits or limb and limb like and digit like uh, organs can still be really useful in the water because if you're clambering around in cluttered three-dimensional environments where you're clambering over weed or over rocks or whatever uh, that's exactly what frogfish do. Frogfish are anglerfish, which are part of the rayfin fish group. They're nothing to do with tetrapods whatsoever. They've got tetrapod-like uh, limbs. There's a couple of other 
um, ray-finned fishes that have evolved tetrapod-like, superficially tetrapod-like limbs as well, um, but nothing to do with moving on land, to do with moving around in cluttered um, uh, uh, aquatic environments. So, so maybe that is the setting for the origin of limbs and digits. Then once you have these things in place, I'm of the opinion, and I suspect you are as well, that a lot of things in evolution happen because because they just can, not because they're destiny, but it's like an organism has, has acquired a set of characteristics to do with one lifestyle, but then, hey, what do you know? That also allows you to do this. You know, so yeah. clambering around in, in the water uh, with robust limbs. Uh, well, what, what happens if you now, if you're uh, foraging in really, really shallow water? Does that allow you to like move 30 centimeters out of the water, a meter out of the water? You know, that's, that's kind of how things happen. We're talking about exaptation. The idea that structures and, and behaviors and whatever evolve for one reason, but then they can be co-opted for another. Maybe that is uh, part of the main story behind the origin of the key tetrapod characters. Um, I'm curious about the origin. So that's, does that kind of like really I think cover... that carries the first bit. I think there's an, also an interesting bit. And why do tetrapod-like creatures evolve only once? And I think that you've sort of gone a little way to answering that in that Actually, there are tetrapod-like uh, adaptions in, as you said, frogfishes and and some other rayfin fishes. But it w I'd be curious to know how many land invasions have there been? Mm. Is, that, is that a one-time? Yeah, to our knowledge, I believe it's a it's it's a one-off. We don't have any indications that other lineages of fleshy-finned fishes or of bony fishes or of other groups of fishes, like cartilaginous fishes, placoderms, whatever. To my knowledge, we don't have any indication that any of those would, um, were experimenting with moving away from aquatic environments. Of course, you could say, you know, you could start talking about, we're not going to, but you could start talking about arthropods, because obviously there you've got, I don't know how many um, invasions of the land independently from the water, because you've got... <clears throat> I uh, don't know what I'm talking about here, but things like scorpions and insects and stuff, they have all evolved independently from different aquatic ancestors, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, possibly. I don't yeah. know either. No, no. I, I don't know. I'm pretty so sure. We should that, leave like, that one alone. <laughs> yeah. Like, like arachnids, I think, were ancestrally marine. Because. Ah, oh, dear. No, don't know. Should stop yeah. there. Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> I thought that like scorpions were ancestrally marine. Eurypterids yeah. are obviously marine, and they're close to scorpions. But but then they've got possible. I know because there's possible terrestrial eurypterids or facultatively terrestrial. Yeah, let's just not go there. We'll stick stick to tetrapods. Stick to tetrapods. Yeah, that's really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. So so far as we know, tetrapod tetrapods or tetrapod-like animals did evolve only once, belonging to this specific lineage of lobe-finned or fleshy-finned bony fishes. And as to why other lineages didn't do this, this is a question often asked about many trajectories in evolution. The answer is, they just didn't, okay? <laughs> it just didn't happen. But there's no fundamental reason why it couldn't have happened. So mm. if, you think, if you think back, like I said a couple of minutes ago, tetrapods have to be viewed within the... Um, they have to be seen within the context of there being several groups of similar 
big skulking um, pred predatory groups of fleshy finned fishes, all of which have got like, you know quite muscular, maneuverable forelimbs. Hypothetically, why couldn't say rhizodonts or tristicopterids? I hope I'm saying that right. The group that includes eustinopteran, but the, several groups of um, near tetrapod fleshy finned fishes. Hypothetically, yeah, they could hypothetically have also evolved tetrapod-like adaptations and then hypothetically invaded the land, but they just didn't, so far as we know. It would be really cool mm. if they did, especially yeah. given that... Yeah, mm. I, I do think it is very interesting, isn't it? Because you'd expect it to happen more than once, given that this this seems like a fairly clear evolutionary pathway to land invasion, which is, as you say, is um, predators, you know, muscular... Uh, predators in uh, shallow water. You'd think it'd just it'd happen frequently, but there you go. Yeah, maybe it did. You know, this is a, this is an area of major, um, you know, lo lots of new research done. These the n the number of um, Devonian uh, stem tetrapods uh, that that are described every year is is pretty impressive. We're talking about you know like. Well, five to ten new tax or well, I certainly get the impression that it's like five to ten new tax every year. It's like new ones from Eastern Europe and the Canadian Arctic and well, even Australia and they're all out of China. So, um, uh, and and many of them are fragmentary and are thus difficult to incorporate into phylogenies. So at the moment, it looks like they are all members of this tetrapod lineage, um, but. Um, <clears throat> Mm. Hmm. There you go. There you go. Once and we don't know why. Yeah. But yeah. but, but okay. then you could say the same thing about like why didn't humans evolve multiple you know, why why couldn't why couldn't there be like a lineage of orangutans that gave rise to something that looks like humans or capuchin monkeys that are like humans and it's just well it could have happened, but it just didn't. And uh, Yeah, yeah. You can oh, say I, the same thing. I think so but it's, it's it's easier to see what was going on there that um, the well, you've got to reach a certain brain size, don't you? Mm. And that seems to have been one of those things that's just taken evolutionarily speaking a long time. Um, so we sort of seem like we got there at the right time. I don't know. It, it doesn't. It seems like a natural sort of thing. I mean, maybe that's the case with the suite of adaptions you need to invade the land as well. You know, you need to be able to breathe air and all sorts of junk. There's probably other things we don't we haven't thought of that you need to have in place to do that. Maybe it is just quite a tricky um, proposition. Yes, the evolutionary yes. pathway isn't as straightforward as it seems. Yeah, we should. I would like to mention in passing, just in passing, just leave this thought here. The the um, the idea that's been put forward by Christine Janis and a colleague whose name I can't remember. They published a paper where they suggested. Uh, no, no, it wasn't them. It was Don Henderson. Don Henderson published a paper where he suggested that animals like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega were actually secondarily aquatic, and that they came from terrestrial ancestors. <laughs> mm. So, but that which, 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 uh, which, if true, would complicate things. Um, well, it, but it just means you'd have to extend back the time of uh, terrestrial invasion, because mm. you still need to obviously get the the, the move from the the land to the, the water and then obviously back to the water. Yeah. Indeed, but it could mean that their particular adaptations are not aren't very informative. Which That's is, right. Yeah. 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 yeah.
<clears throat> okay, now we've got the big one, the big one. Ivan Kwan. You ready for this, Darren? Yeah. <laughs> the Wrath of Kwan. Face never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, we all know that Ashdark had survived up until the end of the Cretaceous. But how good is the evidence for non-Ashdarkid pterosaurs living in the late Maastrichtian? Pteranodontids and Nyctosaurids. Nyctosaurids. Pteranodontids. Pteranodontids. Yeah, I said Pteranodontids, didn't I? Yeah. I don't know why we all have to have these extra syllables in there. Anyway, um, <laughs> don't seem to have made it past the late Campanian. Stupid language. Most other pterodactyloids groups seem to have died out by the start of the late Cretaceous. And I'm not even sure if Pitsky... Pixie Barbarolna. Pixie, Pixie, sorry. Mm. Is still considered a late surviving ornithochiroid. Pure speculation here. Besides Ashdarkids, what other pterosaurs, pterosaur groups might have made around at the end of the Cretaceous, and what niches might they have occupied? Or would these have already been completely taken over by birds? Answer, Darren. Yes. Uh Okay, so we know without doubt that as Darkids were uh, doing well right up to the latest Maastrichtian, and their fossils are found at several late Maastrichtian sites, uh, in, uh, definitely in Europe, definitely in North America, possibly in other places of the world. The problem is that when you want to say something specific about like late Maastrichtian, or, and this is not just true of the Maastrichtian, it's true of like any particular stage in geological history. A lot of places in the world, the dating is not so good that people can say for sure whether... Because uh, obviously the, the thing with the Maastrichtian is people want to know how close it is, particularly to 60... What is it? 64.5 or 60, 66 million years ago because they want to know how it relates to the end of the... The, to the MC Hammer extinction event. <laughs> and uh, so there's loads of Asdarkid bits and pieces from, uh, well, from, from Asia, from um, Australia, uh, that are definitely Maastrichtian, but are they latest Maastrichtian? We don't know that. But whatever, we know without doubt that Asdarkids are present at the latest Maastrichtian. They're present right up to the, the extinction event. As for other pterosaur groups, well, similar situation. We've got a couple of bits and pieces... Um, of definitely of nyctosaurids that come from the Maastrichtian, but are they definitely from the late Maastrichtian? And the problem is they come from deposits that haven't been precisely dated, where this this isn't this isn't known. So there's a thing from Brazil, which was described in 1953 by Ivor Price, which he called Nyctosaurus. Lami Lamigoi. I've never heard anyone say it actually, but a Maastrichtian nyctosaurid. Um, it's, it's it's only like I think it's a humerus. So so this this is significant in being like the youngest nyctosaurid. And if nyctosaurids are part of the same clade of pterodactyloids as pteranodontids and ornithochirids, that's controversial because they're like competing phylogenies for pterosaurs, obviously. But if it is part of that ornithochiroid clade, then it shows that ornithochiroids persisted into the Maastrichtian. But is it late Maastrichtian? And I'm saying that we don't know that. We can't say for sure whether that is the case or not. So nyctosaurids may or may not have been present at the end of the Maastrichtian. Um, as for other pterosaur groups, well, at the moment, so far as I know, I really should have checked up on this properly, and I didn't. But so far as I know, there isn't, there aren't any bits and pieces of other pterosaur groups that are from the Maastrichtian or definitely from the late Maastrichtian. 
So Pixie Barbarona, which, which Ivan mentions, was originally described as a, as a bird in 2002. It's from the Two Medicine Formation of Montana. So it's Campanian. It's not Maastrichtian. But it was identified uh, last year, 2012. Re-identified 2012 as a, as a pterosaur. Um, and mm, I don't know. People are still actually kind of discussing discussing this one because it sounds it sounds kind of crappy to say but when you're when you're looking at like bits of limb bones um it can be hard to be sure whether you're dealing with pterosaurs or birds because they're like distal ends of uh ulni and bits of sorry proximal bits of ulni and distal ends of humor yeah. those kind of things like they, they can be they can be really similar so so pixie might be a might be a pterosaur but whatever it's a companion it's not maastrichtian and as for what kind of pterosaur it is well, that's not really, that's not really clear, either. Um, I'm not yeah. sure on that. So, I'm looking at a paper here. It's by Butler and colleagues. Oh yeah, that which is, yeah, which is about um, sampling and whether there really is a decline in pterosaur diversity. And my memory of it was that there was. They found that there wasn't a decline in pterosaur diversity um, over the Cretaceous that this was a sampling bias based on geology. Um, however, reading it, they do say that there is some support for a decline in diversity in the later Cretaceous. <clears throat> I don't know how robust that is. I'd have to read the paper. Um, but, again, but I think that it's possible that there isn't a, there isn't a diversity drop and this is uh, just a sampling bias. This, um, is, um, this is actually controversial with several different studies reporting yes. different different things, results yeah. and there's a difference between diversity and disparity and the different studies have different conclusions as to which of these is more important so diversity is meant to mean numbers of species so is there a drop in the number of pterosaur species once you get to the end of the cretaceous there may not be because i mean compared to other points of time in the Cretaceous because as darkids, as we've already said, are doing pretty well, seem to be quite diverse and they're globally widespread. So there might be a high number of as darkids, right? So compare that to an earlier point of time in the Cretaceous, diversity may not have dropped. Pterosaurs may still be doing okay. But disparity refers to the variation in proportions, body size, that kind of stuff. And in terms of disparity, well, if all pterosaurs at the very end of the Cretaceous are all as darkids compared to, say, the Coniacean or the Santonian when you've got pteranodontids and other groups, um, then yes, disparity has dropped because you've only got as darkids left, right? So that's what, that's what some of these studies are saying. They're saying diversity may not have dropped, although conversely it may have dropped because we're not really sure how many Asdarkid species there are, but they're saying that disparity may significantly have dropped because you've only got Asdarkids. Um, ah, but as, again, there's a, there's a big problem with that in that the... So for some groups, we know that the fossil record is so bad that we wouldn't yeah. really expect to find them there, like in Uranathids, for example. Yeah. The, there's only a few known Uranathids, but they seem to have been spread out i mean it, it very well could be that there are neuronathids in the latest cretaceous we will never know yeah so this is some, <clears> this is something else that's been addressed in these in these papers with different totally conflicting results some yeah. people saying that there's a strong lagerstatin effect in the pterosaur fossil record which means that you only get taxa well sampled when you've got these exceptional preservation conditions uh, so-called lagerstatter and that's when whenever we find a lagerstatin with pterosaurs in it we find our neuronathids, 
and therefore the people that have Dyke and McGowan, I believe, published a, a paper on this where they said the pterosaur record is biased by a Lagerstatter effect. And towards the end of Cretaceous, don't have any Lagerstatter. By the way, yeah. singular Lagerstatter, plural Lagerstatter. So they're saying no Lagerstatter in the late Cretaceous, which means that, well, as you just said, for all we know, there could be a whole host of small-bodied pterosaurs similar to those of like the, the a-hole, but we just don't know because we don't have the we don't have the, the, the right conditions for their preservation. And other people have done other studies and they say, no, that's not true. The, the pterosaur diversity and disparity record is not ruled by a large down effect and that there really is this significant decline in disparity. So um, I, my, my, I, do, I do think there is a significant decline in disparity and that by the, times, by the time you get into the Maastrichtian, you've basically, maybe you've got one lineage of Nyctosaurids left but otherwise, everything else is as dark as. Now, the, one of the caveats here, another caveat, is that we've assumed so far that all as dark are much of a muchness and they're all the same. Basically, it's the same body plan but different body sizes. As you will know from talks you've been to by Mark Whitten in particular, um, there are indications that things may be more complicated than that. And, and all as dark were not the same after all. But that's something that we, we haven't published on that. We're working on that. So, mm. but. As as far as other groups like Aniranathids, whether they're still present in the Maastrichtian, well, this is one of those things where we are meant to make conclusions based on the data that we have, but the data that we have doesn't necessarily reflect all the data that exists ever. <laughs> so, so at the moment, there's no clear indication that there are other groups persisting as late as the Maastrichtian, but it's conceivable that they did and we just we haven't yet got good enough for good enough fossil record to that's kind of where some people are coming from. Yeah. There's like there's one record of a pterosaur from the something like the Candelaris formation, something like Campanian of Argentina, which was reported at the Munich Pterosaur meeting in two thousand seven. Um and that was said in, I remember reading the poster, they said that it was a non-pterodactyloid pterosaur, like way in the, in the late Cretaceous. And Oh, by the way, having mentioned late Cretaceous, let me just make a point here that a lot of people don't get. And often even, even professional reviewers of papers don't get this. When you are talking about an animal being alive, you say that it lived in the late Cretaceous. And if you imagine that we're walking around in Cretaceous times, you say, if we imagine that we were in late Cretaceous times, we might see Tyrannosaurus, blah, blah, blah. But if you're talking about fossils, fossils weren't alive in the late Cretaceous. They come from upper Cretaceous strata. So when you're there's this difference. And the because you can talk about the two interchangeably. So you can say their fossil record extends from the lower Cretaceous to the upper Cretaceous, and they were at their most diverse in the late Cretaceous. You can do that. You can do that all. You can, in, you can, so long as you're talking about the difference between strata and time, the two are not different and not enough people appreciate this. And I, I use this in my writing all the time and I'm always getting people saying, eh, you're interchanging between, yes, I'm interchanging because I'm talking about the difference between rocks and actual geological time. Okay. So more people need to appreciate that. And I'm sorry if that's that, that may have sounded strangely arrogant, but, um, Whatever. You get what I'm talking about, right? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure our, our listeners will. 
<laughs> clever people. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to get to the um, the the final bit here, which is the old perennial debate about whether birds were replacing pterosaurs. Yeah, and I to sort of kick it back a, a notch or upper level. Why do we think pterosaurs and birds were competing any more than fish and pterosaurs compete or, yeah. uh, you know, insectivores that live in trees compete with or ground um, predators compete with uh, pterosaurs? You know, what, why why is this an assumption just because they both fly that they're yes. the direct competitors? Yeah, well, actually, this is a really interesting <laughs> thing and it needs to be revisited in view of the uh, pterosaur revolution um, and I think it's it's basically a holdover from the uh, entrenched view that pterosaurs are all water birds or shorebirds so if you think about the time when people were discussing this you know the writings of very like Peter Valenhofer and uh, colleagues they're always imagining that all pterosaurs are living like gulls and waders, and all they do is hang around on the, on the seashore, right? Mm. So, that, so basically, that's where they're coming from. They're thinking, well, well, most. Uh, they're also thinking that most early evolution of birds occurred in, uh, you know, shoreline settings and uh, marine environments. Well, for both groups, we've now got good evidence that things are far more complicated. That not all pterosaurs are water bird analogs. That there's lots of them doing things in continental terrestrial environments. And likewise for birds, we've now got good evidence showing that there's like whole radiations of enantornithines and uh, early members of the modern bird lineage that are doing things in you know forest environments that, well, there may be lakes and ponds nearby, but these animals are foraging in trees and in leaf litter and stuff. They're not all water bird analogues. We have to have so water think, to have fossils, right? Well, essentially. Well, the, yeah, our fossil record is, is always biased by yeah. the fact that animals tend to be preserved in water, absolutely. Um, but I, And I think well, not always preserved in water because obviously, you know, they can be buried by ash or sand dunes, whatever. But I think that's why people have got this like as an entrenched view. They, they, because they see pterosaurs and early birds as ecological analogues and it may be more complicated. So, and especially if you think of um, uh, as, as darkids being the most important group in the Maastrichtian, well, as darkids uh, probably aren't doing a thing that any other, that any birds are doing, you know, terrestrial. If they're if they're doing this terrestrial striding thing that that Mark and I have uh, argued, then they're not competing with any other group. They're not well. They're not competing with any group of birds because birds just are not are not doing that thing. Yeah, they're probably they're, competing with uh, smallish predatory dinosaurs, truodontids, and that sort of thing, right? That, that's right. Yeah, that's the that's the closest closest analog. So, um, uh, yeah. yeah. So. Um, I'm just trying to think of where the intersection of competition would be between pterosaurs and, and um, other groups. And obviously you can compete for food, and I would think that in um, ocean-going pterosaurs, the, a big comp the big competition probably would have been fish, fish competing for that, the, the food, right? The, if you're picking fish out of the water, predatory fish, mosasaurs, maybe. I don't yeah. know. They're probably going after bigger things um, than most pterosaurs were. But even so, uh, uh, it's sort of, um, I suppose, it depends what you think a lot of pterosaurs were doing and a lot of birds were doing at the time. Um, uh, I, I do think that the, the, more we've, the more we learn about uh, the diversity of fossil organisms as well, the, the more it seems as if 
views views that whole groups might compete and cause the extinction of another group are naive because there's probably not always but there's generally enough kind of ecological space for these groups to uh, coexist and in any case there have been several studies showing that competition doesn't occur on that level so you don't pitch lizards versus mammals and one group wins it's like competitions occur on the level of populations things that things are really complicated here they're really complicated and really difficult to understand in living animals mm. so when you're talking about things that have been dead for millions of years they're basically nothing more than kind of like speculations sort of assumptions really and i and i do think that this this whole thing pterosaurs versus birds has all been based on a set of assumptions one of them being that pterosaurs are like are like on the way out and that they're inferior to birds another one being that they're overlapping in terms of the resources that they rely on and um another one being that they're going for well I have to repeat myself the same yeah you know, that they're going for the same resources living in the same places i don't know i just i just don't i and we don't, don't know any of those things so yeah exactly exactly that's what i was going to say we don't we just don't have enough information to to uh, yeah and it seems like a questionable yourself. assumption given that you know uh there's generally competition for all sorts of for all energy in the in the environment isn't there from all sorts of animals um yeah. so yeah the notion suppose, that it would be just birds competing is is yes. is wrong in any case it's, it's yeah wrong. because because people are thinking that you know, they're the things that fly but yeah. i suppose this discussion we it shouldn't be about Maastrichtian times it should be about like the the lower cretaceous because why do you use so we know from Lyoning and, and a few other places that we have like a diverse small pterosaur fauna still present in the uh, early Cretaceous when birds are becoming diverse. Um, but from Lyoning, we've got like a huge diversity of pterosaurs and a huge diversity of birds living alongside one another, and then no clear indication that either group is, you know, uh, superior or outcompeting the other one. So what's I would say seems more likely is that other circumstances led to the downfall or reduction of lineages of pterosaurs, which may have affected birds, but not because obviously there are groups of birds that don't persist to the late Cretaceous, like Confucius ornithids and several Nantornithid lineages and so on. But um, yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, we could look at uh, if you want to look at what might have outcompeted them. I think you have to look at everything that was living in their ecosystems that might have competed for the resources they were using, which is almost well, it's a it's a lot of things to look at, and we'll never know because it's too hard to do it even with living animals. So that's right. Yes, yes. And 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 one one more thing to say on that, of course, which is that if a group does die off due to like you know changing climatic, which climatic conditions or or, or whatever. Another one will fill the gap, fill the void, and you know evolve new body forms that take up the space occupied by the previous group. And if we see that sort of thing in the fossil record, and maybe we do, you know, small pterosaurs die off, so small birds evolve to take their place. That doesn't mean there's active competition has led to that replacement. It's kind of like a, it's fr from studies that people have done of like the rise of dinosaurs and the rise of crocodile group archosaurs and the rise of synapsids, the rise of mammals after the end of the, the Cretaceous. So far, all the indications are that it's animals taking advantage of new opportunities. It's not that they were deliberately destroying the, the, the competition by eating their eggs or, or yeah. <laughs> clawing their eyes out in bar fights or, or whatever. So, 
So, uh, I, I, yeah, I think, I think so. maybe somebody needs to. This has been addressed in several of these studies that have looked at pterosaur changes in diversity and disparity. But I think someone needs to do a modern like review essay where they say why there is this entrenched kind of historical view of bird pterosaur competition, why it's naive, why it's misled by stereotypes, what all these groups were like. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's where we're at at the moment. Okay. Um, mm. So, but yeah. but as the in his question, Ivan also asks, you know, he 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 does say pure speculation. What pterosaur groups might have, might have been around at the end of Cretaceous, um, what, and what niches might they have occupied? Well, uh, we can only speculate on that one. And yes, it's like I said, maybe there were late surviving aniridans or whatever, maybe, but but um, they would have to be small and cryptic and come from places that we haven't sampled well in terms of fossils. So, are they a likelihood? I don't know. I think we're going to find some of the ones that were, you know, fairly rich in the Campanian. I, I doubt they're all gone. That's my bet. I but there aren't that many groups that are rich in the Campanian because basically by the time you get that late in the Cretaceous... Oh, sorry, Santonian Campanian. Yeah, well, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Similar things. I, I think they're going to be around. Well, i got some breaking news on that, but I can't talk about it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> remind, me, remind me when we finish recording. <laughs> Okay, so um, thanks to Mike at Terranscapes, Irene Delson, and Ivan Kwan for their excellent questions. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate right. it. Let's, uh, let's move on to Sean of the Dead. <laughs> why, why are we talking about Sean of the Dead? It just came up in conversation, didn't it? It did. I think we both like the film. We just Seems watched... like the sort of our audience will mostly yeah. have watched yeah, uh, we, and we just watched The World's End, which can be regarded as the, the last of the, what are they called? The I, I always think of it as the Cornetto trilogy, but it's yeah, the Cornetto it's and something trilogy. Flavors you know what the hell I'm talking trilogy, about? I think. Cornetto what? Flavors trilogy. Yeah, it is. Right. And we should say, we mentioned David Krentz earlier, and he said he was working with Edgar Wright, and Edgar Wright directed Shaun of the Dead. Now, Shaun of the Dead... I've already mentioned Spaced, haven't I? I love Spaced. It's like yeah. my favourite TV series. Well, Shaun of the Dead is like, as is as is uh, The World's End, they're like continuations of the Spaced kind of storyline, but with uh, sort of parallel trajectories. Obviously, people have got different names and stuff. But if you know Spaced, there's quite a lot of things to look out for in Shaun of the Dead and in The World's End. Not so much in Hot Fuzz, but they're references to stuff in um, Spaced. For example, in Shaun of the Dead, Peter Serafinowicz's character, he's called Pete, <laughs> he answers the phone to someone called Dom, and that's a specific reference to the name of his character in Spaced. He's called Dom. They know, um, they know how to get your nerd juices flowing, Darren. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. You might, you might have noticed when we were watching oh, that. It's a reference! A reference! <laughs> there was a bit in The World's End. The World's End, obviously, is a lot of pubs. And there's a bit when they walk into a pub and there's a um, slot machine that goes, da -da 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 -da. did you hear me laugh at that? It's like, why is he, Darren, why are you laughing at that? What valuable insight can you give us this time? And it's like, well, that's, that's a game called Ooh Dracula, <laughs> which is a, what do you call those stupid machines that you put money in? The, the fruit uh, machines. Fruit machines. Slot machines. Fruit, slot slot machines, machines in whatever. America. They're called pokies in Australia. And no are they called fruit machines here? I think so. Fruit machines or 
something one, like that. Is yeah. it one arm it's one band of those things where every country you go to, they've got a different name. Yeah. Well, well, there's uh, that the same game and the same little jingle is in is in all three of those films, and I think in there uh, might be in space as well because uh, there's one in the the pub in the last episode. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, and of course so the main characters are Sean of the Dead obviously Simon Pegg plays Sean Nick Frost plays Ed they're main characters in uh, Spaced and Jessica Hines plays a character called Yvonne in um, we only meet her a couple of times in Sean of the Dead but she's that's Jess Jessica from um, uh, Spaced Spaced Daisy. She's called Daisy. Because her real name's Jessica. Sorry, I'm getting confused. Yeah, Daisy. I'm glad we got that straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was... So I watched I watched Shaun of the Dead the other night. <laughs> and the, one of the funniest bits in it is, in my opinion... <laughs> so Bill Nye, uh, who plays Sean's stepdad, he's been bitten. and <laughs> And so... So Sean goes round to his mum's and stepdad's house to kill his stepdad. <laughs> and he's holding like a, a thing, a, what do you call like a rag thing to stop? A tourniquet. It's got a tourniquet on. <laughs> so the fear is he's been bitten by a zombie. They don't use the word zombie in the movie apart from once when Ed says zombies and Sean says, don't be stupid, don't use that word. Um, there's a bit where uh, uh, they think Bill and I's character... As uh, is like infected and turning, <laughs> and Sean's talking to his mum in the kitchen, and Bill and I just lurches into the corner, and goes yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's done with this like real sort of scary zombie thing. But he's actually just agreeing with the conversation. He's not. He hasn't turned into a zombie. He doesn't like it. Um, <laughs> do you want to say anything before I carry on? Because I'm two minute rule here. Come on. Uh, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where we're going with this. I haven't got a. I haven't got a um. So here's a problem, you. Darren. I, I enjoyed this film, and often when I enjoy films, I have a lot less to say about them than if I didn't. Let me, let me tell you about my approach to discussing yeah. a movie. It's called Scattershot, <laughs> Scattershot, and you just start talking randomly about whichever bits you remember or thought were funny. So one of the things, to well, not one of the things, a, a big thing about Shaun of the Dead, and you're going to tell me you didn't even, even notice this, but it's a big thing to look out for. I didn't for. notice this. Yes, thank you. Oh, by the way, what's your opinion of this film in general? You say you like it. It's not a yeah. negative opinion. Okay. Yeah, I like this. Um, hey, I bought the Alien Quadrilogy on DVD yesterday. You just chuck out those last two. Ah, drink, drink, drink. Look, look, look. Only cost £10. Will made me buy it. He's into the Alien movies. Um, yeah. All the start of the movie... In the background, basically, um, there's all these there's all these clues as to what's going on. If you if you look at TV sets in the background, if you listen to radios that are playing, if you look at the uh, titles of newspapers, all that stuff, there's loads of things happening in the background which indicate that a satellite has crashed to Earth carrying an alien virus, and that's infected a bunch of people, and that's spreading. And this is obvious. I'm sure everyone knows this, but that's stuff to look out for in the background. There's loads of like little, like things, news things and stuff. I that, did that, notice this. Yeah, there are there are yeah. ideas that you, you're meant to like pick them up through osmosis. They're they're there in the background, and also there's a thing they do in the movie 
And that's a really clever thing. Which oh, uh, all the characters that pop up later in the movie as zombies you see earlier on, but in normal situations, like you see them working uh, behind the counter in a supermarket, or you see them buying food in a shop, or you see them walking around the street. All those characters are all there if you look for them. Um, there's a thing they do in Good the reuse film. reuse of extras. Well, it's not reuse of extras. It's the idea is you go back and you say, ah, oh, that's her story. Because <laughs> that explains why people look the way they do. Like, for example, the first zombie they meet is a lady called Mary in, in Sean and Ed's garden, who they kill her by... It's the bit when they're throwing all the, the vinyl records at, at her. And, mm. and, you, and she's like one of the first people you see. You see her in a, a supermarket. Because the idea is that a lot of the people are sort of... They're not zombies in a technical sense, but they may as well be zombies because their lives just consist of going to work and just doing some, you know, sitting behind a checkout or whatever. Which I did for seven years. It's not such a bad job. <sighs> um, <laughs> what? Before, before I hit the big time with Tetsu. Yeah. Um, but a thing they do in the film, and I, I like this, and I'm sure there's more films that do it, is... Is, is Ed and Sean tell you the whole story of the movie. They tell you everything about the movie in like 30 seconds, but in kind of code. It's the bit when they're having a lock-in at the Winchester pub, and um, Ed says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to back to yours for a Bloody Mary. Okay, there's the lady called Mary. He says, then we're going to go... But, and he lists all these things, and then he says, back, back here at the end of the night for shots back at the Winchester. And, of course, it does end at the Winchester with shots. They, sh they light the drinks on the bar, and they're obviously defending themselves with the rifle. Um, but every Oh, by the way, spoilers! Mm. <laughs> spoilers, yeah. Sorry! <laughs> uh, yeah, so all that stuff, all that stuff is, is set up in the first few bits of the film. Um, now, obviously, being a comedy film, we can't expect people to act in a rational way. But I've got to say, if I was defending myself against zombies, a building with great big glass windows at ground level is probably not the first thing I'd choose. Surrounded on all sides by a street. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'd, yeah, he should have stayed at... Liz's, they should have gone to Liz's flat. But then they said that. They said it was a stupid idea. Because the whole, yes. the whole point of it, because he has to climb up to get to Liz's flat and it's got a small entrance. But the whole point is that he's, everything's failed because he's got this obsession with going to the Winchester pub. Um, yes, the point is that he is an idiot. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's trying to sort his life out and he's not happy with the way things are going. And, um, so, I, spoilers, I, it's not really surprising everyone ends up getting bitten. Yeah, but it all it all works out fine in the end. Well, except for the dead people. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> for the, oh, no, Most the, of them the, die, don't they? Well, no, because the world is restored to normal. Cause the ending is actually a little bit lame because the army arrives and kills the zombies, but the zombies that aren't killed, they're then they then become termed as the mobile deceased mm. and they're basically used for the same jobs they were doing before they became <laughs> zombies so you see people like pushing shopping trolleys and stuff like that because that's not lame that's the only way you could end a comedy well it's not the only way but you can have good. a dark ending where like the ending the the ending of um uh uh world's end is is a dystopian one where like yeah but I, whole... don't, I don't like that nearly so much it's nowhere near as funny 
In fact, it made no goddamn sense. It Uh, was just like, they just tacked this ending on. You seem to enjoy that. Maybe because it was full of references to things, but I just thought it was... I didn't didn't like that at all. I I do have a great fondness for movies where there's like a fundamental shift and the first, like, that is totally different from from that. I kind of of enjoy that sometimes. And I thought, no, I I don't know. I, I, I did think it was okay but you couldn't go back to the same world that well but i thought that was funny that was in shawn of the dead that was a funny joke yeah would, okay. it, really shaun be, of would, the dead. would it be any different if we were all zombies yeah okay and shaun of the dead, you're right yeah, so we're, we're we're kind of talking about shaun of the dead and, and the world's end here but yeah for and um, what was the other thing i want to say about shaun of the dead um uh, i like the fact that okay although it's a sort of kind of a bit sitcommy in places and it's generally a comedy and it's got loads of movie references in it to all kinds of things um i think that especially through the, the music and the general atmosphere that it does actually fit well into the zombie genre and it's in some places done as a sort of specific homage to like you know romero classic zombie movies uh, it in fact it even opens to the opening um soundtrack of dawn of the dead i think i agree i think it is as a, it is a good zombie film even ignoring the fact that it's a comedy it is a good zombie film it's one of the better ones yeah absolutely so i think they did that's why i liked it i think it worked on many levels they, they managed to make a great zombie film and a funny comedy at the same time yes. um, and there are other comedic zom- zombie films zombie land i think is one isn't it yeah. have you seen yeah. zombie land oh, i've only seen bits of it which I don't, I don't really think like were, don't think work nearly as well. Um, yeah. uh, people love Zombieland. I don't really know why. It was okay, but yeah. Yeah, I'm a sucker for zombie films. I, I like I'll, zombie films generally. I like zombie films. Although they they made the point in Shaun of the Dead, I think is in one of the commentaries because there's like three or four commentaries on the DVD. They say that they wanted their zombies to be like classic shuffling zombies of the Romero um, um, mold. Whereas there are a couple of recent movies where zombies are like carnivorous cheetah people. Did we? I, that phrase rings a bell to me. Have we spoken about zombie movies before? <laughs> carnivorous a, cheetah people. Well, yeah, they are like in. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, okay, yeah. the thing with Will Smith, that's not about zombies, but it's about people being infected with a virus that makes them zombie like. What's that yes. called? I Am Legend. I Am Legend. I Am Legend and. The remake of Dawn of the Dead, the one that's mostly set in like a shopping mall thing, um, that's the... And World War Z. Z. World War Z. <laughs> World War Z. That's Which I terrible. haven't seen. Have you seen it? Oh, God, yeah. It's awful. I hated it. Okay, the original Fast Zombie movie was um, 28 Days Later, although we're probably, I'll probably get corrected on that. But that's the first one, that, the big one. And that was yeah. a good film. That was a I really film. liked 28 Days Later. Yeah. 28 Days Later, rubbish. Weeks Hate later. It. Is days that what it's late. called? 28 Days Later is the original. Okay, so the next one, 28... Weeks Later. Weeks Later, that's just... It's, it's, like it's that. really bad, yeah. Yeah, it was nonsense. And, and did they do another one, or are they talking about another one? I think they're talking about... Yeah, they're talking about another one. 28 Years Later or something. Uh, was it 28 Seconds Later? 28 Minutes Later? <laughs> <laughs> it's a prequel. <laughs> we all know how that's going to go. Yes. So, so they deliberately didn't. They went with the classic zombies in Shaun of the Dead. They, they can't. They can't run at forty miles an hour and stuff. And um, 
Yeah, although I liked 28 Days Later a lot, I think that the classic shuffling zombie thing is actually... I find it... That's part of the zombie thing, isn't it? I think that that's a good thing to do. Well, yes, I think so, because you, a lot of these things are like plot devices in a way. I mean, there's bits in Shaun of the Dead where the zombies like walk past them or there's plenty of time for them to like try and open the doors of the Winchester pub. Whereas, of course, you couldn't have that if the zombies were just charging at you like athletes. But uh, yeah. and then it, and the charging around like athletes just doesn't work because it because it, it ruins a lot of the same opportunities. So like in World War Z, spoiler, can I do you mind? Can I can I spoil the film totally? You can spoil it, yeah, sure. Because you don't you don't care, do you? No, it's it's, really. it's terrible. It's really awful. The the it's mostly awful because it sets up all these like big things where Brad Pitt's like going all around the world. He's meant to be this ace kind of international journalist kind of person who can he's multi-skilled he can do pretty much everything goes all around the world for no particular reason goes to india then he goes to jerusalem and then to england and stuff and um <clears throat> that's all like oh well let's get in loads of stuff loads of action loads of like cg zombies piles and piles of zombies and that sort of stuff but um uh the, the 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 end third of it is just set in a lab in england and it's like really slow and boring not that there's anything wrong with that you know if that's done right that that could be that could be great and suspenseful and everything but it's all to do with he finds the magic cure for this condition. And it turns out that if zombies um, detect like a pheromone or something, humans can't detect pheromones as far as we know. A common error that you find in movies, people think that, people think that humans can detect pheromones or release pheromones. As far as we know, they can't. But um, yes. whatever. There's some like chemical thing that, that the zombies can detect that that stops them from attacking other zombies so when there's so there's bits in the movie where like um there's like a horde of a thousand zombies running at someone at like over 30 miles an hour but they can tell instantly from a great distance away that it's that's and they think that's another zombie because they smell up they've got this special chemical so they don't attack them so there's like literally like like rivers of zombies pouring past people but not being interested in them. they're not interested in brad pitt anymore because he now got this special chemical thing they're like running around him. And it's like, but we just saw earlier in the movie, there's a bit in, I think it's the bit in Jerusalem or Israel, wherever, I can't remember, where um, they are like hordes and hordes of zombies are like running around so fast, like manic kind of headless chicken monster things that they like crash into a bus and like tip a whole bus over. It's like, but you've just shown that they're capable of like weaving around people sized objects. And yet here you're showing them blundering headlong into a bus. It's kind of, ah, <laughs> oh, it's just like, yeah. I didn't. I didn't like World War Z at all. See, it's much and, more fun, fun to talk about films we don't like. Yeah, and I am Legend. Now, I kind of enjoy that, but um, but don't like the whole kind of angle that they went with. And now, I, have you read the book? No, you don't read books. I don't read books. Yeah, but I know. I know what you're going to say. I know all this. Yeah. So I've read the book. The book is mm. really good. It's a really interesting. The whole thing is really interesting. The way it's done, and they've just by but it's taking, a stripping movie, all that out in the film. It's just a stupid film, really. I mean, it's sort of enjoyable in a way. It's sort of like a fast zombie film, I guess. Um, but by taking out the main point of the book, I think they've made it pretty weak. But isn't there... There's, a, there's an original movie starring uh, Vincent Price or someone like that, which is the original, like, so far as I know, an adaptation of the original story. And, okay... We should say that the original story is that, okay, so spoilers. 
spoilers in our world let's pretend vampires and zombies are real we go to sleep at night and we're not so comfortable at night time and in the night time that's when the dangerous things come and they can kill us and they are the evil scary legendary things the reason it's called the reason it's called i am legend is because the roles are reversed and the human is the evil legendary thing who goes around killing the vampires or zombies or whatever they are right yeah so right. the reason the reason it's called i am legend is not because he's the coolest badass mofo on the block and he, <laughs> we love him no it's because he is the evil horrible thing that comes along and kills the yes. others when they're asleep that's, that's right. why it's called i am legend so yeah they totally twisted that for the movie plus they've but got the thing is in the book you don't apple. find that out until the end he doesn't even find it out he thinks that they're because some of them are quite damaged like they don't they don't behave they behave more like zombies and he goes around killing them in the area during the night uh, during the day right um he doesn't realize that there's a whole bunch of them that are actually functional and he's killing functional people uh, yeah. and he doesn't find this out until near the end when they come and finally get him and tell him what he's been doing um so it's sort of like I'm amazed they didn't go with this twist at the end. Like, mm. why didn't they do that? It would have it would have fitted with the film. I guess they just like I don't know. Hollywood. Yeah, God damn yeah, it. yeah. I I didn't really. Yeah, I I think it's because they, I Will Smith has become typecast as one of those characters where he has to be the hero. He has to be the one that we love. He's so cool. Yeah. It's like, oh come on, can't you do something different? So, yeah. and in the book, it's not because he's he's evil. It's because he didn't understand the situation, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a shame. Did so you, he still could have seen... been good. It's just did, like a terrible, terrible mistake. Have you seen the alternative ending to I Am Legend? I haven't, no. So there's so the, the theatrical ending, um, he dies mm. because he kind of, sacrifices himself by smashing sense. through the glass um and and he's holding a grenade and he allows that woman and the boy to get away yeah but in the alternative ending and the bit with the butterfly the broken glass the butterfly shape i thought that was kind of i'm sorry that's a bit lame i thought mm, i don't know just <laughs> Um, it had but the, the, the alternative, stuff, yeah. I think the alternative ending is that because he has discovered the cure because he has converted that infected woman mm. back to she, her skin has changed from grey to pink and stuff. Oh, how does it end? I think it ends with him. Yeah, he sets off the grenade. He dies. They, the woman and her son get out of the like little bunker that he has and then they go to the go to the um place where there's still people i don't know some sort yeah. of compound somewhere i don't know it's a whole like uh, typical sort of way these things tend to end except yes. that it was a sacrifice ending and a lot of films go with the non-sacrifice yeah. ending but the sacrifice made no sense i th i think the i think the alternative ending a while since I've seen it, I'm getting confused. I think the idea is that he opens the door instead of smashing through it and laying off the grenade. He opens the door, and the head zombie guy comes in and takes away his woman. Because the idea is that he's there; he's actually there to get his mate, mm. which um, um, 
and and it has a happy ending and and so will smith's character survives i think i think that's right so but, they um, they were trying to do a nod to the original one without the the book without actually following its plan <clears throat> yeah i also remember thinking that it was kind of inconsistent with cuz how do they how do they address this there there seems to be a conflict between the the infected being unstoppable you know bloodthirsty monsters but then cuz that yeah this this is like a paradox of the movie the infected are bloodthirsty evil monsters and he is nah is he meant to be collecting samples from them because he's not just randomly going out and killing them isn't he actually collecting them for samples yeah he yes, is yeah. So I was going to say he's just out there randomly shooting them, which would seem a bit incongruous with the fact that he actually knows that they have some, um, you know, you, they may not be fully human anymore, but they still are sort of semi-human because he, because he refers to the fact that he sees the male one, um, like, expose himself to sunlight because his, his mate makes him sound like they're not human, but... Uh, I don't know. Just, yeah. Why are we even talking about this movie? We're supposed to be talking about Sean but Dick. <laughs> Sorry. Because it's got many more holes in it, I guess. There's more things to talk about than what they did wrong. Yeah, I, I like the fact they touched on the whole like isolation thing. The fact that he's like gone a little bit crazy because he's on his own and he's he, he's talking to shop dummies and stuff. That's, yeah, that's this is. I mean, when, this is what this is why the film is still enjoyable. I think because the setup is still pretty good. You know. The mm. last man alive sort of setup, I think, is good. It's a, um, yeah, it's a compelling premise. Uh, they they screwed it up towards the end. Well, there you go. Yes. So there you go. <clears throat> we spoke about. So we we want to talk about Sean Sean there, which we, which we did, and oh, we like that film very much. So I wanted to talk at some stage about. We can't. I think we've run out of time now. But yeah. s- stuff stuff on TV. Game of Thrones new season started yesterday. Mm. We were entertaining last night, so I didn't watch it. I'm going to watch it tonight. Agents of Shield. I quite like Agents of Shield. It's it's kind of like I'm not that into it. It's kind of okay. But what I discovered from the first series is that if you sit down and watch it all in one go, which I'm not saying I've got like seven hours or however long to sit down and watch it all in one go, but I watch it like in bits over days. Watching it back to back is quite enjoyable. And there was a really interesting thing on. Um, called Shooting Bigfoot, America's Monster Hunters, which was on BBC Three or BBC Four. It was available through iPlayer as part of a series called Storyville. And do you remember several episodes ago we spoke about... We, we often mention Bigfoot because it's like... We, we obviously did that special show about it and it's something we've discussed over the years, written about and stuff. Um, do you remember we spoke about the, 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 the latest Bigfoot hoax model? This model mm. called Hank, made by this guy called Rick Dyer, transparently a hoax. And, you know, it was, it was obvious it was a hoax as soon as pictures were released. Well, this documentary, Shooting Bigfoot, America's Monster Hunters, was kind of like the backstory to that story. Because it's, it's... We'll have to discuss this another time because I'll talk about it for a long time otherwise. Yes. But, um, yeah, it was it was very strange and enjoyable and fun to watch but also deeply uncomfortable viewing and i really i really don't like i there must be people okay 
there must be people listening to this who know people who make documentaries or even who make documentaries themselves. And I want to say this to people like Morgan Matthews of Minnow Films who made Shooting Bigfoot. Stop it with the quirky music. Stop it. <laughs> it's, it's annoying. There's like all these things do it now. All of them. They even do it on Finding Bigfoot, the, the thing with Matt Moneymaker and Bobo Can you do that. some of that music for us, Darren? Because I don't know, because well, I haven't I watched have any a, of these things. You would need a xylophone. But it's like whenever someone is doing something quirky, they have this, I, I just can't imitate it. But all of these documentaries, they all have this like plinky kind of ding, ding, this sort of weird clinky music that's like, ooh, doby doo, doby doby. So, oh, and the, and the thing I mentioned with the Mark Evans thing, um, Dead Famous DNA, that had loads of this. I would love to make a montage of one of those shows where like Dead Famous DNA had endless shots of Mark Evans walking down streets in moody lighting or standing on a boat while he's traveling or sitting in a train while he's traveling or reclining in his hotel room. It's like we don't need all that crap in a documentary. A lot of it is specifically done to make activities look quirky and also to make people look stupid and the bigfoot thing this shooting bigfoot america's monster hunters it focuses on a bunch of people who they're idiots okay these people are idiots i think i can say that without controversy my point is that it's obvious that they're idiots you don't need to make them look like idiots and these documentaries are specifically done to make these people look like idiots so in shooting bigfoot Actually, I'm now going to, I'm discussing everything I was going to say, so we're not going to talk about yeah. it another time. In Choosing Bigfoot, it focused on Tom Biscardi and Rick Dyer, who are two people involved in these hoaxes involving like they, they got model Bigfoots and say they've got real corpses. And it also focused on two unemployed, like older men. And there is no end of shots and scenes in this documentary specifically done to just make us realize what kind of weird people these are. So Tom Biscardi, he doesn't come across a very pleasant character. He, he often seems like unusually aggressive and stuff. And there's a bit where in his, he's being filmed in his kitchen. So the guy has come to film him in his house. And there's a bit where his girlfriend or wife, whatever, his, his partner, she's in another room and she makes a noise. So she flicks on a light switch and Biscardi shouts his mouth off. He says, God damn it, honey, will you shut up here? We're trying to make a movie. And it's like, my point is, you're filming in his house. You don't need to include that in the final edit. We know he's an idiot. Okay, that's obvious. And we can tell from other things he says that he's a strange, aggressive character. You don't need to include the bit where he shouts off at someone else making a noise in his house. You're filming in his house. Of course, there's going to be stupid background noises. Then the bit with these two like older guys, these like two weird unemployed guys, they're like, they're not too pleasant to look at, these men. And they've both got kind of like... <laughs> Sort of, sort of issues with their respiration and it's over the, it's like really unpleasant to watch because there's these like giant close-ups on them and there's so maybe we sound like that i don't know but <laughs> again it's like yes i get it they're gross it's like you but you don't need to put that in the documentary but and... hang on hang on darren i think you're missing what these documentaries are actually about it's not about Bigfoot. It's about, it's about crazy about people. It's about crazy people. Yeah, and that's like, I, mm, it's like, I, I, just, I but I, in some ways, I haven't seen I haven't seen these documentaries. But there is another approach, which is sort of your, um, you know, John Ronson or Louis. Yeah, Theroux, right? Louis Theroux. But this is the same mold as that. It's trying to do the same thing. But they, but the way they do it, 
No, 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 because I was going to say, John Ronson and Louis Theroux, they don't ham up the craziness. Well, They no. just let the people talk. No, Louis Theroux has changed a lot. And if his current thing is called LA Stories. Yeah. And I really like it and really respect it. And it's proper, full-on... You can't hear the dog snoring, by the way, can you? Nope. Noisy creature. Willow! Fast asleep. Um... The, uh, the and, and it's just done with sincerity and honesty, and it's good. But if you look back at some of the other stuff he did, there's a thing he did where he go and goes to meet all the people that are like chasing UFOs and go into Area 51 and stuff. Mm. That is, I have no attachment to this subject area, but it's like that is specifically done to make the people look stupid, and by asking them questions that make them look stupid. And it's I just don't and and again it was like done with a quirky plinky music and. And I, I just, I just don't really uh, agree with this this kind of filmmaking. And and also now we know that there's a whole bunch of uh, not a whole bunch, there's a small number of documentary makers who are masters of the art, and they they are they like Werner Herzog and people like that. They they originally were making the documentaries the way that they were due to you know, constraints of budget or whatever. They weren't funded by the BBC. They weren't going out with teams of seven people. They were just like a guy out on his own with a camera and a mic, and he is doing everything, right? It's people doing that in the same, in the same mold. But now the, um, the kind of genre has evolved such that the, the person making the movie is a character in the movie. So this, this shooting, and basically it's making themselves deliberately i can't believe it's accidental they're deliberately making themselves more significant in the story than they than they should be so shooting bigfoot started with this whole animated sequence of like with credits you know you don't you don't need to have credits at the start of documentaries anymore um now that people have got fast forward on remotes and stuff it's this there's this like it's long animated sequence of like people running around in the it was silly it was just it was deliberately done to be quite silly it was quite well animated people running around in the woods chasing chasing bigfoot firing guns and stuff and one of the characters running around with his little camera and sleeping in his little tent at night with his camera one of the guys was the filmmaker and it was like you're you're making up this is like about your adventure and this isn't my bigfoot adventure this is meant to be about the bigfoot hunters and it's it's a very weird, very strange, and and disturbing uh, TV program. Which disturbing because it was like had a car crash feel to it. I didn't want to watch because mm. I felt so uncomfortable watching these people and listening to their voices because I was listening to it on headphones late at night. And the th and it ended at the end in a really strange, creepy way with an actual a, a pretend Bigfoot encounter, which was obviously staged. But how it was staged, you know, I mean, whether the filmmaker was involved or not. You know. I don't know. Yeah. And and also and I should say I should say also finally the last thing I want to say on this is that is that I know how a lot of these people make these documentaries because I've actually experienced it. So without mentioning any names at the weird weekend conference I went to a documentary maker was making a documentary there and I was paying special attention to what they were filming who they were talking to and they were specifically collecting stuff that made people look stupid. So for example Someone was giving a really technical talk, and a really technical talk at Weird Weekend, a significant percentage of the, in, of the audience are not going to be that interested. So there was you know, older people asleep in the audience, and this filmmaker was filming the people asleep during the talk. 
And I'm thinking at the time, why are you doing that? You're doing that because I know what you're going to do. You're going to cut between showing this really dry, boring talk and showing the people asleep. Mm. And it's like, I, I, I get what you're doing. That's going to be quite funny, but that's also really unfair to your... Uh, but also, I mean, it's in some ways it's a bit false because you go to any conference and you film the audience. Unless the talk is pretty exciting, there's probably yeah. going to be some people asleep in the audience. It's just the way conferences are. I find it very difficult to stay awake for the entire day during a conference. It's just really hard to sit there and listen to people talk all day. Even if you find the subject matter interesting and they're doing a relatively good presentation, if it's the wrong sort of time of day, you're going to find people asleep in the audience. It's not just weird weekenders. You go to any, as I say, any conference, SVPCA, interesting talk, you'll still find people asleep. Yeah, not at TetsuCon though. <laughs> not at TetsuCon. We'll, we'll have to have we'll have to have some policy of like water balloons or something. <laughs> <laughs> Beanbags or water balloons. We just <laughs> right. Right, and that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, okay. We've probably gone for about two hours now, so let's wrap uh, up, huh? Yes. So th thank you to donation donator people. Donator people, yeah. Donate, yeah. Thanks for donations, and when we have, I uh, hope you enjoyed the fantastic quality of our voices coming through our new equipment, which we got yep. thanks to donations. And uh, I kind of, I like to think we're sort of starting to turn a corner in terms of the financial position. I really hope so. Um, mm. um, there's a Tetrapodsology Facebook page which you should join or like or whatever if you're interested in Tetrapodsology. I currently blog at scientific american there's a blog called tetrapodsology there there's a book called tetrapodsology book one which is available from bad and good digital retailers john myself and our friend memo kozman have published the books cryptozoological volume one volume two is on its way and the uh, a book called all yesterdays both of which are available through get them through lulu or amazon or whatever they're very good they've had rave reviews everybody loves them please buy them um i currently tweet at would it help if I got out and pushed in my at Tetsu? Um, and t-shirts. T-shirts. Uh, at the at our Redbubble, Redbubble shop, which you can you find a link to that through Tetsu.com. Down yes. a little sidebar. Uh, Tetsu.com, of course, is the uh, website for the podcast. There have recently been new installments of the Tetsu comic. By Ethan Kosak, uh, the f the the, fam the amazing Red Pandas of Ohio uh, story. Definitely check that one out. If you're a Tetsu regular, you'll get a big kick out of it. And the latest one is on axolotls. Um, That's comic.tetsu.com. Yes, uh, Ethan has recently set up a. Oh dear, I've written it down somewhere. I forgot what it's called. Uh, a kind of sponsorship deal where you can where you can uh, help him. Uh, to Ooh, publish Patreon. Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com. So please consider supporting our friend Ethan Kosek at Patreon.com. Tetsu Time, run by Alberta Claw and John Termel. They've. Have you seen their story? They're running a story about how we go on an adventure to South America mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> and get engaged in the, the Brazilian Pterosaur Conference. So thank you to them. Oh, that's at time.tetsu.com. Uh, yep. What about you? I'm at johnconway.co. I'm at Nike to Terrace on Twitter. Nick to Terrace. Uh, Nick to Terrace. Nike to Terrace on Facebook as well. Nick to Terrace. 
You meant to say nuke the terrace every time I say knock the terrace. Oh, did I get it the wrong way around? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, that's it, isn't it? So go to johnconway.co. Oh, there's something else I want to mention. Oh, uh, recurring donations. Ah, You know, we always think they're recurring. But, you know, on the... the, um, on the PayPal, if you donate to the podcast, there's a little checkbox that says recurring donation. That's the best because then we can plan. We can plan for things. Um, uh, I think that's it. I think that is it. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, re- reminder about tetsu.com. <laughs> tetsu.com. Tetsu.com. <laughs> that's entirely different. Tetsu.com. Um, yeah, if you're interested in that, but you're not on Facebook, uh, let us know. Email, I think, is best because then I can contact you back. If you email tetrapodcats at gmail.com um, and say you're interested in this, I think I'll come up with some sort of mailing list or something. You won't, I won't spam you with email about it, but yeah. Um, so, yes, do that. Is that it? Is that it? Yes. Yes.